Yeah, thank you. Thanks everyone for coming. This is not very stable, but um, he's, he's not very happy. Um, I'll try to be as loud as possible. Um, so in case you're not hearing at the back, please find a way or get closer, not too close. Um, yeah, uh, thanks for the invitation for Navara. Um, I will try to make it as fun as possible. A lot of the material we're going to discuss today is not super fun. Uh, so in case you felt bored or felt like what I'm saying is academic jargon or whatever doesn't make sense, please have it reformulated in the form of a, of a question and let's discuss that at the end. I really want this to be a casual conversational thing. I will try as much as possible to show examples that we can discuss as well at the end. Um, and yeah, so let's get going. This is... Um, I will also be uh, a bit too descriptive because we're recording a podcast of some sort. So <laughs> I will try to describe the visuals. Um, um, let's get into the mood. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. When the wind's from the east and the sun's from the west and the sand in the glass is right, come on down, stop on by, hop a carpet and fly to another Arabian night. Arabian night. Yeah, you know the song. <laughs> It's from uh, 1992, the original Aladdin's movie. And in case you couldn't hear the lyrics or you heard them before but did not pay attention, they say, oh, I come from a land from a faraway place where the caravan camels roam, where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face. It's barbaric, but, uh, but hey, it's home. So do I. Uh, to give you um, a clue, I come from Lebanon. Lebanon is north of Palestine, even though Google wants to say something else. Uh, both countries, Lebanon and Palestine, were colonized by uh, the French and the British. Lebanon became controversially independent in 1943, survived a 25 years long civil war, also controversially, it, it did not really end, and Syrian occupation till 2006. This is what Google Maps wants to say about the map. It's a really small place with a lot of problems. And it exists somewhere where we all want to label Middle East or we're used to uh, talk about as Middle East. The question here is, it is Middle and East to what exactly? The answer is, is obviously Europe. Um, throughout colonialism and history, uh, this whole area was mishmashed into one thing in proximity to European modernity or European uh, hegemony, and then a lot of people use, use the term Middle East, but it's actually a colonial term. Maybe we should one day um, reconsider it. That Middle East was represented in different ways by um, mapping people, so uh, cartographer, geographers, um, and designers, and a lot of 
a lot of the representations are made by designers who don't actually question history or read. This is uh, the area before uh, 1948, and it was split between French and English um, power, colonialism. And this is Sykes-Picot, the, the agreement that uh, distributed the area like a, like a piece of cake. And this is how designers represent it nowadays. This map should be 1916, and it says Israel. And Israel was created in 1948. This is to ask if we actually question the realities we assume while designing. Palestine is still colonized till today. And this is the change of um, maps. This is the visualizations. I'm not trying to make political statements about, uh, statement about Palestine, uh, I think. Um, this is evident and not negotiable, but I'm, I'm trying to show different visualizations made by designers and uh, what they mean and if we actually uh, consider um, questioning those visualizations. Design and communication disciplines have been historically and actively involved in constructing and mediating cultural identities and have consequently provided tools, processes, and products of high nationalistic connotations and contributed to collective memory and citizenship. Design is always, always, always political. It serves or subverts the status quo. And here, us designers have to take a stance, since what we do can never escape being political, whether we do branding, whether we do um, event promotions, whether we do uh, social media, or whether we're, we're a bit more engaged and do uh, information design, um, design research, whatever we're doing, will contribute either positively or negatively. And most of the times it's a choice when we exist in a privileged context. This is another visualization of uh, the world map between its actual size and its designed projection. So the actual uh, sizes of Europe, a big part of Asia and North America were very much augmented. Do we question the realities we assume while designing? Who are we designing for? What is universal design? This is a term we hear a lot in the art school. We, hear, we talk a lot about universalism, we talk a lot about a common design language that you don't need to uh, send it with a designer to explain it. We talk about, a lot about um, small design elements or languages that we, we deem common. Uh, those questions you'll see on pink slides are, can be conversation starters at the end, so maybe keep them in mind, and they can also be hypothetical and you don't have to worry about them. So what is universal in terms of design? Pictograms. This is the most common example of something that is universal. Maybe we can take a quick look at them. How many people in the world eat with a fork and knife? Are all women in the world wearing A-line dresses? Why is the woman on the reception desk? What is the letter P? Even those pictograms come from a certain dominant culture. They come from a Eurocentric perspective of 
what universalism is, what we understand in Europe, how a woman or a man or any gender looks in Europe is what we, what we deem universal. Why are we even representing binaries? Why does it have to be a male and a female? Why do males and females have to look like this? All those questions are legit. Who are we designing for? What is nude as a color? Why are all pharmaceuticals designed for a certain skin type or skin color? This is an example of um, the scan from the scanners that are at um, airports in the States. And those, those machines understand algorithmically through design knowledge um, to detect male and female according to specific body parts, putting a lot of trans people in danger and in hour-long hour questioning processes. Those were also designed. What is Dutch here? Why are the Delft Blues considered Dutch? We sell them, we design with them, we buy them as tourists when we go to the Netherlands, versus what is the Chinese Hmong porcelain, Ming porcelain, sorry. What is this whole fuss about? How did we actually bring colonial design and made it ours? By ours, I mean European. I'm not European yet, I would like to be, but not yet. Here we question what is identity representation? So societies function within systems of self-expression developed according to their habits, traditions and rituals. Such systems form cultural identities, promoted and mediated through different tools, amongst which design takes the lead as a primary agent of communication. And here I don't want to be like putting blame on designers for actually designing national identities because we all know this is not true. No one really cares what designers do, but designers actually are involved in the process. They actually make decisions, and most of the times they don't make their own decisions. So I'm very aware that we cannot blame representational problems on um, a couple of designers who, who took decisions based on color schemes and aesthetics that are also Eurocentric. But uh, there needs to be um, a process through which we question our design decisions. Those are symbols of identity representation of uh, what we consider national symbols. Dark, historical, strong, dark also today. Um, for example, the Euro banknotes uh, were designed to look like any European monument, but they actually are fictional. Those archi architectural monuments you're seeing on those Euro banknotes um, were designed uh, so that they don't belong to any country. They are fictional constructs of power. They're meant to show power that doesn't really exist. The only landmarks that actually exist in Europe are the maps you see on the coins, or the figures you see on the coins, and they're mostly male figures. Another um, um, two very strong representations of um, branding and of uh, design languages um, they happen to be both fascist. Uh, we're talking about uh, the Nazis and um, the Trump uh, election campaign. Um, and basically, it, it's, it's quite shocking when you know that most decisions that made brands survive were very much aligned with the brand manual of the Nazis. You have to give that a look at some point. 
Another symbol of, of a national struggle or um, a nationalistic story belongs to the uh, scarf that is called kafiye or kufiye, and it's the Palestinian scarf. The pattern you see on the scarf is actually a fisherman pattern. However, through the usage and through the struggles in the region, this pattern is most known uh, in Palestinian resistance, and it was, it was worn by uh, fighters who were resisting against occupation in Palestine. With time, this pattern morphed. I don't know if it morphed innocently or not, but it actually morphed into the total opposite of what it symbolizes. This is another morphing for this brand. This time, it's made by designers. In 2006, um, if I remember correctly, it first appeared on the Valentino runway. I mean, it's, it's not H&M, it started with Valentino, so it's also something to, um, to consider. Uh, from the very everyday farmer-resistant person to the high-end fashion brand. Quite crazy. And then it, um, for, for sure, when, it, when it's shown on um, runways in Paris, the next day it's in retail shops. So then it's uh, sold at Topshop for $75. Other examples, this is also the Givenchy campaign and uh, the Chanel cruise campaign that was meant to celebrate Dubai. I don't know the link between Dubai and the Palestinian kafiyeh. This is also a design decision. Then we have more iterations. Some of them are critical. Some of them are uh, critical of where kafiyas are now produced, but also critical of um, general consumerist behaviors. Some of them look like critiques, but they actually encourage this misrepresentation of national symbols. This is a kafiyah that, um, I don't know if you can see from afar, uh, it has logos of Chanel and Prada and other, other famous brands. The question here comes, okay, but then, and I hear this question a lot, so between appropriation and appreciation, and no, I did not mean this, I was honoring a certain culture, and I was actually paying tribute to it, blah, 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 designers really like that argument. And here I say something really simple, I'm not here to judge anyone, but if we're gonna take that argument, we have to look at engagement. I know that most of the design works, or the, let's call them visual productions, are well intended, or are on the side of culture appreciation. But if they don't come hand, hand in hand with engagement, and I will explain what that is, they mean absolutely nothing. So for example, when a brand like Valentino uh, goes and appropriates um, a symbol that is quite political, like the kafiye, Valentino has to prove that um, this appropriation negotiates and recognizes history, the history of that garment. It actually takes a stance and this like, mm, I didn't want to take sides, I respect that and respect it, doesn't, no, uh, doesn't work. Um, or has to pay back the communities um, which were robbed from their rights to those symbols. And we're not gonna go into cultural appropriation, it's a, it's a whole other debate, but it's very much in line with what we're talking about today. So engagement is a really important thing. And engagement does not mean uh, an apology video. They're very trending nowadays, so that's not the point. Then we go a bit uh, deeper into what we're gonna talk about. Orientalism, um, the Orient. I'm gonna start with, with the term the Orient because it means a lot of things. In some uh, literature studies disciplines, the Orient is the whole region 
from Southeast Asia all the way to Morocco. So it combines different people, uh, peoples, it combines different cultures and languages and races. Um, and other literary studies disciplines recognize Orientalism as um, um, to be contextual within the Arab-speaking region or the so-called Middle East. Uh, I'm going to use um, the canon in this field. Where, I mean, the work is quite uh, debatable as well, but the definition is Orientalism is a way of seeing that imagines, emphasizes, exaggerates, and distorts differences of Arab peoples and cultures as compared to that of Europe and the US. It involves seeing Arab cultures as exotic, backward, uncivilized, and at times dangerous. Orientalism is a Western style for dominating, restructuring, and having authority over the Orient. So basically, and in some form of summary, everything that is uh, European or American is rational, versus the Orient is irrational, materialistic, spiritual, civilized, savage. It goes also into gender. So the Orient is always feminine, exotic, belly dancing, hairy, sexual, um, passive, and refuses to change. So we always have to go there, bring civilization to the Orient, and try to make changes. If we're not succeeding in that, we then take what, what we saw there, we mishmash it again, in a way that uh, reports on that place to be one of fantasy. Aladdin is a great example for that, and I think Aladdin is something we all identify with, whether uh, the game, um, the movie, the reproduction of the movie. Uh, I mean, gladly this time, they, they, uh, the main actor was um, Egyptian-American, so they did one thing right. However, um, in Aladdin, they, they create this fictional place called Agrabah, and it's really something that is Indian and Arab. I don't know how that is possible. I mean, geographically, it's quite impossible. Maybe in Dubai, you can make that happen. But geographically, it's quite impossible to have like a um, place that combines the two cultures. And probably they also um, deemed both cultures not worthy of individual movies. So they're like, let's just mishmash those brown people together. Um, so I'm going to show you a quick edit um, with a lot of examples that we can discuss later. It's also a breather so that we can breathe a bit.
يلا يا حبيبي يلا Those are uh, chronological examples that date from early days of visual representations around the Orient uh, to um, the last few years of uh, basically how were Arab communities represented, counted, cataloged, um, whether positive or negative. I'm not here trying to uh, destroy all those works, but a lot of them are problematic and I'm, I'm very happy that we now don't do a lot of that work. Uh, those are the early days of Orientalist paintings. Um, of course, there's a representation of, of um, color here. Another uh, example from photography. This is in gaming. Aladdin, if, if you really play the game again, I loved that game. And, I, and you can download it, by the way. And it's a guilty pleasure. I played it again, and things you see are not that fun. But um, it's quite interesting. And then you have all the other representations of what is Arab. I mean, for a long part of history, Egyptians don't consider themselves Arab. The right-wing Christians in Lebanon don't consider themselves Arab. Uh, a lot of um, people in, in, the, in North Africa are not even Arab. They're Berber, so it's a whole other culture and a whole other uh, language system. So uh, mishmashing all those cultures together is even problematic. Is even problematic. So um, how about putting India with them and making Aladdin. Even in uh, Looney Tunes, in, in animation, we have examples of, of the barbaric Arab who wants to kill the pig in this case. I mean, makes sense. Uh, <laughs> uh, another example from, from, um, from a movie for uh, Pasolini, and it's, it's really celebrated. Those works are really, really celebrated. And if you really watch that movie, uh, which is called Arabian Nights, and by the way, Arabian Nights, even the, the um, fable, the, the, the story that we people tell, and Shehrazad and whatever, this is also European imagination. It comes from somewhere, so there are roots of that story in different areas in the Arab world. But it's also European imagination, the story as you know it, it does not exist. Um, so this is Arabian Night showing a lot of, like, very erotic scenes, not in, in the activist erotica that we're seeing today, more in like uh, the misrepresentation of Arabs, and it has a lot of brown facing as well. Heavy, which uh, brings us to the Orientalist aesthetic, and if we go back a bit in history, it flourished and got developed uh, in a certain area in the mid-19th century when mass production started in the US and then they really wanted um, consumerism to bloom. It was basically high capitalism and they were mass producing everything and wanting people to buy a lot. And one of the things that were famous at the moment and, and considered sexy and high-end were cigarettes. And cigarette papers come, come from Europe uh, at that time, from, sorry, Turkey at that time. And then they were considered exotic and uh, very uh, sophisticated and mixing European sophistication with the Turkish pastiche and then creating something um, that is called, in this case, camel. But there, were, there was a lot of cigarette brands that celebrated Orientalist aesthetics, all the gold, all the deserts. Camel is still, till today, celebrating that same aesthetic. Gladly they changed a bit. Those are some ads from the early days of uh, Air France, and um, this is exactly how they portray um, different people. 
those are new campaigns by Air France. Nothing much has changed. Um, the the person from Pekin is uh, is is like um, celebration. Is like um, what's that fictional animal called? I forgot. Dragon. She's kind of a dragon. Uh, the one from Dubai is for sure gold and sitting in the desert. Her features are definitely not Arab, but I mean, the one in Dakar is also white, celebrating Dakar. I don't know what that is supposed to mean. While vis-a-vis um, -vis how they represent other countries, especially European countries, and this is how. So this is the other. We're talking about othering as, as, as a main pillar of Orientalism or Orientalist aesthetic. This is the other, and this is Europe. This is another representation, a movie that was uh, Sex and the City 2, uh, was shot in Morocco as if it's in Abu Dhabi, something like that, you know, that region. And then uh, they really uh, had fun with styling. Um, yeah. And other uh, pop icon symbols, I mean, it's always like this, this in between um, mythology, something historical versus something religious, and then a lot, a lot of gold in the case of Shakira. Shakira is half Lebanese, but she's selective about that, so I don't know when she's Lebanese, when she's Colombian in, in what she represents. And then uh, in this case, Lady Gaga wanted to liberate, uh, to, uh, sorry, liberate women from um, the burqa that was um, that aligns a lot with white feminism in this case, and then you have uh, Katy Perry's um, uh, video clip. And then, if Orientalism wasn't enough, we go into neo-Orientalism, and it's um, easily something that happened post 9/11. So 9/11 changed this whole mess into something messier, and um, it's basically. Um, while classical Orientalism was centered on erotic images of unveiling, so basically getting naked and erotic, neo-Orientalism is hyperveiling, the female body especially, and an exaggerated focus on conservatism in order to maximize the social, cultural, and political distance between the West and Islam in this case, and convey a sense of threat. So if Orientalism was Islamophobic by intent and purpose, neo-Orientalism is um, Islamophobic cur. Um, those are some examples that, that actually highlight the shift uh, of the aesthetic. So from, um, and I'm going to talk about how, how we Arabs were, were kind of allies in that shift. But this is the shift, so from um, unveiling into hyperveiling. This is what happened also in like the opposite gender. Um, Aladdin was very evil and um, uh, quick and, and barbaric, but then he became rich, and that was like um, those movies were around the early 90s, late 80s, where there was the rise of the Gulf and the um, oil money, basically. And then post 9/11 till now, they're they're the um, extremist figure of like the terrorist Arab that you see a lot in American movie. So an Arab in an American movie is either barbaric, a super rich sheikh um, who usually gets robbed after something sexual, or the terrorist. 
And this is, um, those are other representations of neo-orientalism, of the focus in Western media on uh, hypervailing women. Um, and I don't feel like explaining that not all women wear a burqa, blah, blah, blah. I feel like you can Google that. Um, but this representation is very, very common in Western media. Those are more modern, fun representations. Designers really like to play with, with those things um, irresponsibly, and I think it's not okay anymore, but back then, this is in 2007, a project in collaboration um, between uh, Mediamatique and uh, um, a group of uh, Lebanese-type designers in the Netherlands. I don't know how they felt this is okay. And then um, a book by a Dutch illustrator um, that also aligns with hypervailing and neo-orientalism. But then you ask me, what is an Arab identity? How should we represent that complex thing? My answer is simply, it does not exist, really. We are 22 different countries from um, Asia to uh, Africa. Um, we span like different races, languages, and have different histories. We don't even speak the same. We, we have the same formal Arabic, but we don't use it. Um, and then there was another shift in, in our history, which is the rise of the GCC. The GCC is basically uh, the Arab Gulf, which is uh, Kuwait, Saudi, uh, the Emirates, which are known, I mean, Dubai is the most well-known. So the Dubai model or the Dubai syndrome affected a lot of uh, design produced about the region and in the region. Uh, so the GCC hired international designers for multi-million dollar budgets on city branding and consultancy. And that's really true. They were like really high budget uh, projects, leading to something that um, we're going to go uh, in detail about Arabization and Latinization, borrowing elements from Orientalist gimmicks and forcing them into a Latin lettering approach and vice versa. This is a bit technical, but this is only for, I mean, you can enjoy it as well, but this is for, this is a design, whoever is like type savvy, we can talk about this in, in detail later. Something that resulted from that we call Frankenstein Arabic. I'm going to show you examples. So this is what happens. They basically, um, those new designers, whether Arab or not, in Dubai, uh, they decided that, yeah, okay, so we have to create, by law, we need an Arabic version of every logo. So what's the easiest example? At, at the time, there was not a lot of Arabic typefaces, and lettering was something they thought, oh, it needs so much work, so much money. What's easier is let's outline Latin type and like mishmash it into uh, Arabic letters and construct new things like this gap, which is easily half of the P flipped with blah, blah, blah. You know what happened here. Uh, Snickers is another example. We don't have italic in Arabic. It does not exist in Arabic type. You can do it in calligraphy, but that's another thing. And then uh, this is uh, the body shop, the Arabic version of the body shop, which is also bits and pieces of the Latin typography uh, transformed into something that we can read. I mean, I can read it. Arabs can read this, but it's a total, I mean, um, respects no um, rules in terms of Arabic typography. It respects no um, history of the peoples of those regions, and it just basically relies heavily on the Latin typeface. And this horrific case, this is, um, this is what we call Arabization, and that's basically adding some increments uh, that actually have a meaning in Arabic. So I don't know if you're seeing the cursor, but here, so those dots and small bits and pieces exist in Arabic so we can read. 
I mean, we can read without them, but they exist in Arabic um, as um, vowels sometimes, they exaggerate pronunciation, or they are actually letters. And then uh, a group of designers uh, working for MNC Sachi, and as far, I'm not sure, but as far as I know, they're Australian. They decided, okay, we got, this is the jackpot of, of our lives, the Abu Dhabi city branding, let's make a Latin typeface that looks Arabic. And what looks Arabic? Just like a very badly spaced typeface with dots and pieces everywhere. It looks calligraphic, but the calligraphic angle is actually Latin. I mean, it's a mess. I'm not going to bore you out, but whoever is interested in typography, there's a lot of um, talk about that. So Dubai was another um, big factor in the Orientalist aesthetic. Another example, I actually, I mean, those we've seen everywhere online, uh, the Arabic tattoo for some, for some reason became trendy in the last years. Everyone, I mean, I don't know, you see a porn star with an Arabic tattoo and then you try to read, but then... Um, <laughs> and then in, in Arabic, the, the softwares are actually problematic because even the software does not want to actually properly represent Arabs. Uh, because if I give you now an Arabic text and you put it in Adobe, if you don't have Adobe Middle East activated, it gives you this, which is disconnected letters flipped. So no one can read that. <laughs> so even algorithms, even software companies, take actual political stances in including or excluding communities. This tattoo is also another classical example of like someone going to a tattoo artist wanting a tattoo, but then the tattoo artist took liberty and it says, um, uh, should I say it? Yeah, white American uh, prostitute. That's what it says. Um, this, this is a poster I've seen actually two months ago, three months ago here in Berlin. It also um, it works around the same logic. It's about the Royal Omani Symphony Orchestra. And it actually uh, uses Arabic letters. Those are Arabic letters. In a way that you read them in Latin. However, the sound of the Arabic letter is different. So this letter in Arabic is K. The designer thought it looks like an S. So let's use it like an S because it's fun. I mean, we've seen that happening a lot in, in the past years. It's very, very problematic. We've seen it a lot with, uh, um, um, what's it called? With a lot of scripts coming from um, Far East countries. Um, we've seen a lot of Japanese and Chinese misused. Uh, I'm gonna go a bit faster. Those are other examples coming from Dubai because of course, I mean, we have to be Swiss minimalists even in, um, cultural stuff that have to do with the Arab world. And then we, of course, have to have burqas, even though they don't wear burqas in Dubai. Um, and then, yeah, so this is an advertising campaign. And then we get into self-Orientalism. I'm not going to repeat the definition because it's the same definition, but this time it's, it's produced by native designers. And I'm not here to throw native designers under the bus. I am one of them. I come from design, and I've, I, I do work for Abu Dhabi, um, and it's quite challenging. However, there was a phase, because of the high demand of, of Dubai and Abu Dhabi, uh, designers, especially coming from, from Lebanon, or from the, Levin, Levin, the area we call the Levantine area, uh, had to produce work 
works that sell there. And what sells there, or what sells internationally too, is the Orientalist aesthetic. And then they adopted, um, they adopted this aesthetic. And I'm going to show you another edit, so we can take another breather, about products or designs um, made by locals, by natives, sorry. So it, you can see a lot of parallelism, a lot of similarity between, between self-orientalism and orientalism. And actually, it, the reason is one. The reason is colonialism. Sadly, um, they lead to the same thing. And when you're colonized for so long, you're told that you're one thing for so long, you start believing it and you start reproducing it. And this is what, if you're interested in... Um, decolonization or decolonial theory or decolonizing design, you can check decolonizingdesign.com or just read uh, uh, Franz Fanon. Um, and he talks a lot about the colonized mind and the psychology of the colonized. Uh, basically, self-orientalist design is uh, characterized by four uh, main things. A dismissive attitude, so we dismiss everything that is Arab. It's like, ugh, so old, so barbaric, why should I keep doing this? Or we have a passive exchange, so I don't want to deal a lot with it. I want to take the money of Dubai, but like mm, I don't want to do a lot of good representation. We glorify the self, so we're like, yes, we are Arab. We are the gold, the camels, the, the deserts, even though we're not, because a very small part of the Arab world is actually desert and camels. Uh, or we go into a minor reach for arts and crafts. We call ourselves Arab leftists, and we start doing things 
uh, with artists and, and craftspeople, but it's nothing really that creates a sustainable ecosystem uh, and builds around native communities. Those are some of the examples we've seen. We're going to go through them quite quickly. This is an artwork, and I think it's an installation or a product, something like, you know, multidisciplinary, um, by uh, an artist called Carlo Masoud, and this is supposed to represent a strong Arab woman. And basically, it's a, it's a woman wearing a burqa that looks like a bullet. So all actual symbols of danger, of hypervailing, and gold, because, I mean, gold is beautiful. This is the army of strong Arab women, in his opinion. This is another design project, design research project, by um, artist and designer Rana Salam and uh, Malou Halasa. Uh, and then they decided that it would be interesting, of course, for the Western eye, for the European eye, to uh, go uh, look into the peephole of Syrian lingerie shops. So they went to um, um, souks in Damascus and they did a documentation. And then in the, in the videos you've seen the word cataloging, which was very colonial as a word. Everything was cataloged, so noses, body parts, etc. And then they cataloged how Arabs um, actually have a fantasy or uh, celebrate erotica in a way that is like half a joke, half reality, but they don't want to make a political uh, commentary about it. And then um, even if you ask them, which I did, uh, I had an interview with them, with uh, Rana to be specific, the answer is that we wanted to tell the West that Arab women also have sex. That's another, uh, those are other examples of um, projects displaying what does it mean to be Arab, again, the adoption of that same aesthetic, which is very, very, I mean, the middle thing is called pearl inlay, and it's a really traditional um, arts and crafts. Um, it's not arts and crafts. It was a huge furniture production, actually, in, in different parts of the Levant um, area. And then it was accessible to many, but suddenly now uh, younger generations of designers are producing more work around it and selling it for tons and tons and tons of money. So this is actually, again, not cultural appropriation. This can be like class-related appropriation in the sense of taking something from the poor and selling it again to the rich without political context. A bit similar to the, to the scarf we talked about. Other representations of the self. Uh, this is a photography project by Tari Maddim. Um, this is quite old, to be, f to be fair. Um, I don't think those representations happen anymore, especially in photography. And uh, the other thing is a collection that he designed. It's a pearl inlay collection of sex toys, um, which also uh, fit within the Orientalist narrative of the region. This is a fashion uh, collection by Zaid Farouki. And um, yeah, of course, on a white model in Dubai, wearing national costumes belonging to men um, without proper political explanations. Uh, another example is a movie by Nadine Labake. It's, it's quite, it's a good watch if you want to watch it, but it also puts this like East and West in perspective. It puts, it puts like the Arab woman as a certain stereotype uh, versus the European woman who's like coming and bringing liberation and sexual openness to a village of conservative women uh, in the movie. The questions here, and we're getting to an end, uh, what happens to design after we bring it to life? 
How can we, designers, control the repercussions of our work? I'm going to end with a couple of uh, projects that, are, that have to do with community work and design. This is the Subjective Atlas of Palestine, a part of a series of subjective atlases by Dutch designer Annelies de Vett. And um, basically, they went a group from the Netherlands, a group of design students, to uh, Palestine. And they worked on a workshop with Palestinians' creatives on visualizing um, what does it mean to be Palestinian or life in Palestine right now. Um, the work does not acknowledge the political situation of Palestine, or actually it does by calling it problematic or hard or difficult. There is no acknowledging of um, settler colonialism. There is no acknowledging of daily violence that happens there. It catalogues um, how difficult uh, Palestinians um, live in terms of paperwork and in terms of uh, visas and uh, transportation in this sense. But it also catalogues how many hummus dishes we have, or they have in Palestine, and uh, uh, how many ways we can display a Palestinian flag in bread or with watermelon, or so on and so forth. Another um, field in design that is quite problematic, and it's social design. Um, social design is a field that is also going through a change, and it's getting somewhere better, uh, gladly. But those are from the early days of social design, when a group of European students students used to be taken from Europe, parachuted for a week into an African country, and then asked to solve a problem um, after one week. And usually the solutions were um, quite dangerous. Um, there are some examples of um, students building bridges and then animals going into the people's houses, or a lot of those solutions that people know how to do. People know how to build bridges, um, but then it's a, it's a design choice for designers, and it follows this ideal model that was very, very commercialized and, and promoted in the last years. Uh, and I think even IDEO is reconsidering the notion of working uh, with communities. Um, and here, um, I'm not going to be whining all the time. I'm going to provide some alternatives um, for designers in the room or for whoever wants to work in the creative industry. Um, a critical approach to representation uh, means the following, not strictly, but, um, but those are just suggestions that we can discuss and build on. We need to recognize uh, the history of design being a um, practice that stems from the commercial arts, and it's a, a capitalistic practice by birth. We need to understand that identity as a design construct is, is, falls on a spectrum. So there, there is definitely no purest identity. We're not talking about nativism or nativitism, whatever that is. Uh, we're, talking, and we're talking about a grayscale. However, grayness or neutrality should not be an excuse for misrepresentation. Uh, we have to take a stance against sustaining coloniality of power, and that means against sustaining and reproducing those colonial visions of certain areas or places. We have to acknowledge our own privileges. That means location, position, gender, ability, whatever intersection we're talking about. We have to only represent when needed, if needed, while making spaces for natives and involving them in projects. Most people are paid to do work. If you cannot do the work, make space. This is the least you can do if the project is um, about representing a certain culture. However, don't do it as a token. Don't bring a person of color on a design project to have the person in the credits only. 
prioritize social insights over visual matters. Dismissing the intersectional struggles of a community in favor of aesthetics is not acceptable. We cannot keep doing uh, swimsuits with the Palestinian kafiyeh. Avoiding the nostalgic trope, condescending class-related dynamics, and the Pinterest quest for visual fetishism. It means not everything we see on Pinterest should become a trend. We have to question those trends. We have to see to which class are we designing, and are we taking something from a class to another, and how problematic that is. We have to advocate for criticism and authorship within design. The designer as artist or designer as branding expert is super important, and they will always exist. However, for this field to happen and to survive, even though it's quite obsolete, for the remainder of the field to survive, we need to advocate for writing and criticism in design, and we have to take design outside uh, the art school, and we have to know that what we do influences lives and histories. Researching, critiquing, and testing are really crucial, and it's not a linear approach. You can do it backwards, you can mix it up, you can go back to it. It doesn't end. When in doubt, don't. This is simple. If you're in doubt, should I do this project? Should I actually take, represent this project? Should I work on this with this specific community? If you have the doubts, just don't do it. I always finish with the same sentence and I, and, I, and I really wanted to open a conversation and it comes from a place of warmth and um, I think it's the only way forward in design. I invite you to rethink the colonial angle from which we together perceive distant communities. While the importance remains for the local to resist, correct, customize, collaborate, preserve and sustain itself away from parachuted creatives and funded exotic gazing. Thank you. That was it. <laughs>